Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me Stories from the Stage. I am your host, Kunji Ikeda, and through this podcast, we are unwrapping thoughts, ideas, images, dreams of the Japanese Canadian experience through theater and dance artists. I will welcome you back to the Nikkei Auditorium, this theater within the mind, located between your ears, wherever you are in the world. Please take a seat and relax. And we are fortunate to have Mieko Ochi with us to unwrap some of her works and some of her thoughts to share with us on this episode. Before we get going, it's worth noting, in this episode, Miyako speaks warmly about Japantown, inspired both by her grandparents' pre-war experiences in Vancouver and things she's picked up about Japantowns in the United States. Miyako's grandparents and many other Japanese Canadians in their generation found community in Vancouver's historic Powell Street neighborhood, now known as the Downtown East Side. Today, many low-income residents in the Downtown East Side have built a home and are in an ongoing fight against displacement not due to internment, but gentrification. We want to give a quick shout out to the folks who continue to build community in the Powell Street neighborhood today. So without further ado, lights up on Miyako Ochi. My name is Miyako Ochi, and these are my stories from the stage. So I invite you to imagine me lounging in very comfortable uh, clothes, stretchy pants, a nice big stretchy top on a bed of about 200 pounds of steaming hot rice. <laughs> it's like a futon of rice. There's lovely steam. It's kind of like being in a steam room or a Nordic spa. Um, but yeah, just imagine me lounging in some rice and that smell when you open the rice cooker <laughs> in your nose. Um, and yeah, I, I think it'd be great if you could imagine me there. That's just, that's beautiful and tangible and, and we can smell it and, and feel it. I mean, it's, it's if I can join you here on stage, it's, uh, uh, yes, it's, come join me on my rice pillow. It's nice and warm and, and soothing <laughs> and very necessary in times like this to find some comfort. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Let's start with a little bit of your origin story. How did you find your way uh, to be drawn into story and playwriting? Oh, it's such a great question. You know, when you look back on your life, it's always interesting to think about the moment when maybe you, there was a glimmer of who you were to become. Even from like two or three years old, I was very obsessed with story. I uh, taught myself to read before I was five years old. I wrote stories that I would dictate stories that my mom would write on a typewriter as I orally dictated them. And I have books of those stories from when I was in elementary school before I could write. And I wrote radio plays with my friends in elementary school. And then, of course, when I went to junior high and high school, I kind of went down some different routes. I was interested in, you know, literature or maybe doing an English degree. I was really great at biology and I did some IB biology and I thought maybe I'd become a geneticist, like, you know, like one of our, our famous Japanese Canadian brethren, um, <laughs> David Suzuki. That's right. My parents Shout were out. like thrilled. My parents <laughs> were thrilled that this was a possibility. And then I went to university and I started off in genetics. But all of my options were in drama and fine arts uh, and creative writing. So I took some poetry classes with Douglas Barber. And there was something so wonderful about being in a room after being in these giant, you know, psychology 101 classes with 600 people. I would retreat to a tiny room in the English department with seven other poets and work on poetry with Douglas Barber. Or I would go to the drama department and like take an amazingly challenging, you know, class or a you know, a history of theater class. And I, those were really the places I was most drawn to. So after a year of, of science, I switched over to a, a BA honors in drama. And I really started to kind of imagine myself being an actor, a professional actor as a career. And I had a very um, 
well-meaning and, and a, a lovely teacher who I'm still very good friends with, who sat me down after I got into the BFA and he said, I know you've been writing plays and I heard that you've gotten a workshop of a play recently, but you really need to leave the writing behind. If you want to become an actor, you must solely focus on this one endeavor wow. and you need to put all your writing away. And um, I just had my first full-length play read at the university and Workshop West had actually contacted me to say we'd like to do some development on the play. So being the obedient young student I was, I called him up and said, no thanks, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> and uh, very, I gently said, I just, you know, I've decided I'm going to go and do acting training and I don't think I'm going to really write anymore. Wow. It's interesting. You can always say you're not going to write anymore, but if you are a writer, I think it is actually something that's quite compulsive. Oh. And it's actually not something you can really control. So in between all my, you know, acting classes and things, of course, I continued to write secretly in <laughs> dark moments or quiet moments I had to myself. You just, I think when people are writers, they just, they just write. You can't really stop yourself. So yeah, so the year after I got out of school, an old friend of mine got together with me and said, do you want to make a film together? And uh, so we hashed around a bunch of ideas. And I finally said, you know, there is a story I'm interested in exploring as a writer, which is the story of my Japanese grandfather, Edward Ochi. And I know that he's famous, but I don't know why. And so we ended up making um, my very first documentary film called Shepherd's Pie and Sushi. So it was really this deep dive suddenly into my identity as a half Japanese person and the cultural story of what had happened to my family. So that was like the first year out of school. And that kind of launched me as a writer, first of screenplays and then eventually a plays. Wow. Okay. Well, so much to unpack in that, <laughs> that history. Thank you. Um, did you always know you wanted to investigate this story of Edward Uchi at some point? I didn't, except that he was this larger than life character, I think, in my life. I was very close to my grandfather. Um, and he was, I always saw him as this very gentle, uh, kind, he was very quiet spoken, very intellectual. He spoke and wrote Latin, English, and Japanese. He had a science degree from 1926 from wow. UBC, which is the time when there were almost no people of color at the university. Um, and eventually I started to become more aware of all of his activism and um, work for the community as I started to unravel his story for the film. So I discovered that my grandfather was a, was an activist is what I discovered. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, and, and tell me about the, the title, Shepherd's Pie and Sushi. <laughs> Shepherd's Pie and Sushi, I think, just became a way of trying to encompass the mix of cultures that were in my family. Mm -hmm. So, of course, my dad being uh, Japanese-Canadian. Uh, my mother's side, um, she's also uh, third generation, uh, English, Irish, Scottish, and German. Um, but Scottish culture is very big <laughs> in my mother's side of the family. So we grew up with like, you know, crocheted Scotty, Scotty dog Kleenex box covers in my grandma's car <laughs> and lots of like, if it's not Scottish, it's crap, you wow. know, bumper stickers. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> Did you ever talk to your, your father about how, like those, mm. those words of if it's not Scottish, it's crap. <laughs> Did that like impact him or you? Well, it was so interesting. You know, when my parents got together in the 60s, they met at the art college in Calgary. And my dad was nervous. He told me that he had dated another uh, Caucasian girl and it had not gone well. He had met her family and they were very like horrified that their daughter was, was dating a Japanese Canadian man. So when he started to, you know, hang out with my mom and she said, oh, you should come over for dinner. He was like, oh, how is this going to go? So he was very nervous. He polished himself all up. I mean, he was kind of a hippie. He had long hair and he was going to art school. And, but he showed up at my grandparents' grandparents' house and they were so excited to meet him that my grandmother had taken potatoes and she had put them through an old-fashioned thing called a ricer. I don't know if you've ever heard these. No. It's like a potato masher, but when you squish them through, it makes it look like grains of rice. No, really? And so she served it and she told him it was rice and it was potatoes. Did she know it was rice? Like, did she know? 
oh yeah, yeah, it was a total joke. It was a joke on her part. She thought it was hilarious. And so right off the bat, like they had this really great relationship and um, my mom's parents really loved my dad and uh, were very supportive of them dating and then eventually getting married and having kids. And so it was kind of a neat story and not one that you might expect to have happened in Calgary in the in the 60s, right? Sure. In the mid 60s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, similar story to my folks. Yeah. Um, maybe not as artsy, but uh, <laughs> similar story happening in Vancouver, just a touch later too in the 70s. Yeah. But um, did you have a lot of uh, Japanese influence in your life as you were growing up? I did actually, uh, even though my dad, so my dad was born after internment, mm. um, just after internment. And he had, I think, two brothers who were born during internment. So he was kind of on the cusp of that time. And as one of the, the things that came out of the internment experience for my family was that because both my grandparents spoke perfect English, um, they decided to only teach the children English. Ah, wow. And they gave them all English first names and they made their middle names Japanese. Uh, and they changed their own names from Takeshi and Yoko to Edward and Elizabeth, very royal British names, <laughs> which is quite sweet. And so they really tried to raise the kids in what they felt was Canadian culture because they wanted them to thrive and they were very worried about them being discriminated against or bullied at school. Oh. And so as a result of that, my dad lost the language, which was really hard for him. Um, but of course, all the other cultural things were kept alive, um, food and um, you know, my, my dad grew up at the Japanese Cultural Center in Vernon, BC, which was like the hub of all the families and communities. And we used to grow up going out there every summer to Vernon. So I have a lot of cousins. My dad had six brothers and sisters. His uncle had 11 children wow. and his aunt had four children. Wow. So I have like 25 first cousins, <laughs> and like many more second cousins. And so cool. we, we, later when we found out the word Hapa, our family reunions were called the Hapanings because we were all Hapa. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I'd like to unwrap this phrase that you've offered, which is a compulsion to write. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. What does it feel like when you're, you're, compelled to write it's hard to describe to someone but it feels like there's ideas inside me that I kind of need to wrestle to the ground I need to kind of roll around with and I don't know what the outcome will be who will win who will come out on top but I'm always intrigued to um, spend time with them and what I find on writing retreats I think I see my real writer self emerge and I will sometimes write for 11 hours. Wow. Um, I will <laughs> go and get my breakfast, take it to my writing space, and I will only emerge for meals. And I have a lot of strange um, <laughs> rituals that I do, including shutting all the curtains. So they give you a room with a beautiful view, and then I shut all the <laughs> curtains so I can't see it. Um, <laughs> and um, I like to, like, kind of set moods. So when I was writing The Red Priest, I often would write by candlelight. And I had, I like to like sip on like Venetian red wine. <laughs> and I would like kind of set the mood for myself. And yeah, different plays, I kind of find those different ways in and it might be a smell, it might be, um, sometimes it's been like a soundtrack, like a film soundtrack. Mm. It's been- um, Can we go through? A few of them? What was, sure, what was, yeah. What was your, your habitat for the yeah. blue light? Oh, the blue light. Well, that was really uh, a play, the story about Lenny Riefenstahl, who was this complicated and controversial figure, uh, who was a, a woman who was an incredible filmmaker, but who also made all of the propaganda films for Hitler. Mm. That play was really a chance for me to ask questions of myself as an artist about how my work, how I allow my work to, do, to be used or how is my work used? Mm. I think it was, those are questions I was interested in, in exploring. Um, but because it was about like the early days of film, like I know you can't see my office right now, but it's full of like film tins and mm. I love old film equipment and things like that. So I'm often surrounded by, by things like that. I have lots of rolls of like 35 millimeter film and 
um, I just love the, the, the feeling of like celluloid and ah. um, things like mm -hmm. that. So edit suites and yeah, I, light tables. And <laughs> I'm so charmed by this. Can, can we do a couple more? Um, sure. So like I love the synopsis and then the, the ethos that you build. Um, yeah. So Nisei Blue. Well, Nisei Blue, it's a noir detective mm. story set in Japantown in the 30s before the Second World War. So when the community was really thriving uh, in Vancouver before the war happened, um, but sort of in the, the midst of like race riots amongst the Japanese and the Chinese and the, the white settlers of Vancouver and the Asian, there's a really anti-Asian uh, backlash. Mm -hmm. But I was so intrigued by the stories that I heard in the States actually about these supper clubs that would happen that were owned uh, by Japanese or Chinese. The performers were Asian and again, the audiences were white. So I created mm. my own version of this in the, in the story. So the two, two of the main characters are these two white cops who get thrown into this world. And the one is a scotch drinker. And so I would often just have like just a tiny bit of scotch. <laughs> But just that sense of like the smell, the mm, peaty smell mm -hmm. of scotch was important to me. And I also spent a week writing um, in Vancouver out of the Sylvia Hotel wow. uh, downtown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they have a bar um, that's like an old time cocktail bar. Mm. And I spent a lot of time <laughs> in there. And they still have the old bathrooms. Like they've redone it, but it's still... Um, an incredibly um, evocative space. And I also spent a lot of time just walking the streets um, of old Japantown. Mm. Um, and that's where my family also had a boarding house. Oh, wow. And it was owned by both sets of my Japanese grandparents uh, cool. together. So their two children married. Oh, neat. So, yeah, yeah. so I spent time, you know, at their rooming house, which is next to Oppenheimer Park, right in the center mm -hmm. of Japantown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time scouring that space for those little remnants of Japanese Canadian culture. Wow, very delightful. And uh, yeah, so those were some of the things that I drew on for that. Do you, uh, sticking with this compulsion to write, <laughs> yeah. What do you do when you don't have an a project, an open project, or do you ever I have a? I kind of always do a project. <laughs> I'm a person that I often will write two or three plays at the same time. Mm. So the more I write, I think I've discovered that um, it helps me get over writer's block. So if I'm stuck on one play, I can just switch over to another play and kind of write my way out of it and then go back. <laughs> so it's become kind of a fun way to take the pressure off. And still feel productive, but to kind of switch my brain. Around. Has it ever happened that you're writing for one project and all of a sudden you're like, oh no, this belongs in, in another. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I do like solve a problem in another play. Like I'll be working in a play. I go, oh, oh, I know. And I'll go back to the other play and go, it came to me when I was wow. on or I'll figure something out. So I found that that really stopped me from feeling paralyzed mm -hmm. by writer's block, which I know a lot of people can we all struggle with. Um, that's been a huge help. The other thing I've learned as a writer is to not go back and edit ah, early. Mm -hmm. I think early on, I was so afraid of writing badly. Mm. I would write a sentence and then rewrite it until I had a word. And I'd write two sentences and I'd rewrite those until I had three words. And I was like, well, this is not really progressing. Like, I'm not really getting anywhere. So my new rule is that I can't go back and edit until I've kind of um, made my way through the whole story, mm -hmm. even though I want to go back yeah, of course. <laughs> and dig in. It keeps me propelling forward rather than going back. Mm. I, and I think it allows that initial um, gem of an idea, germ of an idea to fully be realized before I start meddling with it. Mm, so I like that's that. lovely <laughs> yeah I was I was raised artistically in the improvised theater world which which says yeah. that you you want to improvise looking in the rearview mirror and, and oh. I've, I've carried that idea with and that that little poetic image with me as I dip my toe yeah. into writing of, of yeah. let's finish so that we can look back on it before yeah. judging what it might be yeah I think so because if you let judgment in too early um 
it you can edit yourself into nothing mm -hmm. into nothingness mm -hmm. because the critic in us is so is so strong i find a lot of the little tricks i have for myself are about silencing the critic and wow. just allowing my subconscious to keep going and the weird stuff to pour out <laughs> oh, yeah can i ask you what does your critic sound like oh when you say silence the critic, the critic is strong yeah. my critic is strong i think i love i'm an i'm a super avid reader i read a lot and i love good writing and so i think that is a deadly combination because once you fall in love with good writing it can really paralyze you and stop you from writing at all because you're afraid of writing badly mm. or not writing as well as the people whose writing you adore or you think is magnificent. I, I, I now set as my goal to write me in a mediocre play. <laughs> That's lovely. Okay. <laughs> to say it doesn't have to be great. Like just write a mediocre like fair to middling play you don't want it to <laughs> suck then, but it, it doesn't you don't want to suck but you can be okay with like yeah. mediocre and then you improve upon it because the truth is of course like every time we rewrite the play gets better i've had to kind of give myself permission to be a bad writer mm. and to work through that that stage and and the more you get to know great writers and i've had to the chance to meet some, um, you know, in different ways as a, as a playwright, or I mean, as a director, like working with great playwrights, I, I started to see that they also went through periods where the writing was not good. And that that was part of the process. And we had to allow ourselves to be bad. <laughs> so I think I've learned that over the years to let myself, but there's still a very sharp critic. In there. Mm, that's a beautiful mm. little piece of advice, the allowance <laughs> to be bad at something. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, I, I got into I started in theater and then when I worked into dance yeah. that permission yeah. to be the worst dancer in the room really yeah. freed me to so to learn awesome. more to take in because I'm not I'm not focusing on on trying to be better than anyone when I'm allowed to be bad I can I can really uh, uh, dig into it a little bit more explore and take risks mm. and yeah, and that has really stuck with me. And I, I think, you know, early on, like when I started making films, I had no training as a filmmaker, but there was something so exciting about being at the bottom of a mountain again. I had just worked my way through theater school, trying to become a better and better actor. And here I was at the bottom of a new mountain, pushing a new boulder up the mountain. And it was so exciting to be a beginner again. And that is definitely something I've hung on to. And that's what propelled me to become a playwright. I think that same desire um to become a director and then you know i a few years ago i started work on a novel and it was the same thing i was back at the bottom going i don't know what i'm doing and it was great wow <laughs> i mean i just got hit with a, a poetic maybe it's the title for something later down the down the road but the yeah. the joys of sisyphus mm -hmm. yeah. oh yeah. yeah i mean if you want i have sisyphus sauce do you okay yeah yeah that the idea of pushing like, the boulder up the hill is Oh, yeah. There's so much there. A lot of that idea came to me early on because I was working with Ann Wheeler, who's one of Canada's greatest filmmakers, mm. and she uh, became my mentor. I, I starred in a film that she directed called The War Between Us, mm. and one of the things she said to me early on was, each film is a boulder that you push up a mountain. And I remember asking her, so does this get easier? Like, this is so hard. <laughs> this first film is so hard. Will I ever finish it? Well, you know, and like, you've done so many films, like it must get easier. And like, please tell me this. And she goes, oh, no, no, you just get to pick a new boulder and you get to push it up a new mountain. And so, you know, it was great to hear that though. And to hear it from someone who was so accomplished wow. to say, she said, it's not easy. Like making a film is not mm. easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. And not everyone does mm. it. And I think it's the exact same thing for writing a play. Lots of people want to write a play, but to write, to complete the play, you have to push a boulder up a mountain and it's not easy. <laughs> you know what? That's fascinating. I was given the same piece of advice from a choreographer, oh, from Helen Husick, cool. a Calgary choreographer. Yeah. And, and I asked, does it get easier? <laughs> We're all hoping, right? As young totally. Artists, like, it can't always be this hard, right? Yeah, and she said, uh, "I so yeah." I asked, "Does it get easier?" And she said, "Nope, but you do get more confident that it will end up somewhere." 
And, yeah. and so there's less doubt while you struggle along with your boulder. <laughs> yeah, I, re- exactly. I really appreciated that advice. And I feel like it has. I've, I really trust yeah. now that something yeah. can turn into something. Yeah, there's like less of that like deep core fear mm. because you've seen things um, come to a completion mm. enough times, you believe that it's possible for sure for it to happen. Yeah. So you see that possibility alive in the air. Yeah. Wow. I really love that phrase, deep core fear. <laughs> well, we all still have it, right? What do we? What it, tell me about your oh, deep I, core fear. I do. Uh, if oh, you're if you'd sure. like to unwrap such oh, a thing. Sure. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I think I think fear is a it's a huge part of our work as artists. And I can only speak as a playwright, but the opening night of your new play is a fear you have never felt before. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fear that is deeper than any fear you will ever feel as an actor or performer. It's like being a parent. Yeah. And, and hoping is. that your child makes the yeah. right decisions. And doesn't get beat up at and school get beat and up no one steals their lunch. And they don't beat up someone else. <laughs> oh, they don't beat up someone else. Exactly. And, and there's nowhere to hide on opening night. Everything on stage has come out of your imagination, the world, the setting, the lines, the everything. And that is a deep core fear. Mm. That is hard for people to understand until they experience it. Now, now I'm going to be honest. Yeah. One way that I like to dodge that that core <laughs> is to work yeah. myself into the production, so that so that ah, yeah. even though it still has elements of that of that fear, yeah. I feel more in control, being present within it. Yeah. Can you speak about coming mm-hmm. in from an acting background? Was it a conscious decision to write work and and not be in it? Yeah, my first play, The Red Priest, um, I actually did not imagine I would be in it. I performed the first five monologues as a short piece for Catalyst for kind of an omnibus project that we did. Um, And after that, when I was writing the play, I always imagined that somebody else would perform it because I had heard all this advice that you should never be in your plays. And, uh, but I had written the part of, a, of the woman, there was a two-hander, um, who has to play part of a Vivaldi concerto at the end of the show. I grew up taking violin lessons. I thought everybody took violin lessons. I sincerely did not think it would be difficult to cast that until ATP tried to cast it. And they could not find anybody who could play Part of a Vivaldi, a movement from a Vivaldi concerto. So they ended up coming back to me and saying, you've done all the readings, Miyako, would you just do the show as the performer as well? And I was like, oh, I have to think about that. Like, will that, will I be able to be objective and see what changes need to happen in the play while I'm inside of it? Um, but ultimately, I think it was a really good decision for that first play. It let me understand it from the inside. And I think I took that knowledge forward with the blue light. Um, I, I think a lot about actors when I'm writing and what it feels like to inhabit the play. Hmm. Yeah, so I think I, I see value in both experiences. Um, but I definitely feel like my training as an actor has, I hope, helped me write plays that are exciting for actors to dig into. I mean, that's one of my, still to this day, one of my overriding goals is I want to write plays that actors fall in love with. Mm. I want to write plays that actors go, I have to do this play. I must play this role. The play that they drag to an artistic director and say, you have to read this play. You know, that's the kind of play I want to write. That's beautiful. What, in your experience, what makes for a play that will excite someone in that way? Oh, I think... uh, I mean, everyone wants a great character, a juicy character with like complexity and like big questions that are unanswered. I tend to write like ginormous roles for older women. I feel like older women actors are really underserved um, across the country, around the world. (laughs) It's like you turn 35 and you play mothers for five years and then like all the interesting roles are kind of gone. There's a few here and there. And I always feel like that's when women actors are really becoming so incredibly skilled and masterful at their craft. And that's when the roles dry up. So 
I've always been interested in writing great parts for women mm. and kind of saying here, like be on stage for three hours mm. mm-hmm. and be the central line of this play. Or my latest play, Burning Mom, is a one woman show for a 60, like a, a woman in her mid to late 60s. Yeah. Going to Burning Man. So, going to Burning yeah. Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. What was the ambiance for mm. Burning Mom? There I am. Oh my, oh my gosh, that's so funny. Well, you know, it is based on the true story of my mom actually going to Burning Man. Um, Yeah. So, so very tragically, my dad uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer Mm. in 2010, Mm. and we thought he was told he had six months to live, and then he died three weeks later, and it was so shocking and sudden. And we really didn't have time to even wrap our consciousness around what was happening as it was, as it was going on. And my mom had lost her partner of over 40, 40 years. And they'd gotten married when she was 19. Wow. <laughs> and it was her first serious boyfriend. And she'd moved out of her parents' house in with my dad when wow. they got married. So she'd never lived on her own. But a year after my, my dad passed away, you know, such a hard year that first year. And my mom called my brother, my two brothers and I into the family room. And she said, oh, I've been thinking and thinking. And I, I really think as a family, we need to go on a, a trip together. It's just been such a hard year. We need a time to just kind of regroup. And I was like, oh my God, Mexico or like someplace like an all-inclusive. This is what I was dreaming of. I was like openly like, oh, that sounds so good. Like just laying on a beach and like people bringing us drinks and like, just to let go of all the stress. And, and my mom said, yeah, I think we should go to Burning Man. <laughs> and there was this <laughs> deathly silence. I don't think I could even replicate in the theater of us going, what? what? Like, what? I, it turned out that she, this was not like a spur of the moment thing. Like she had planned this out. And then we eventually discovered that she had learned how to drive their 26 foot long RV secretly at night. and she had this plan that she was obsessed and determined to make a pilgrimage to Burning Man to honor my dad so my youngest brother Kevin and uh, his friend Julia and my mom drove to Burning Man Man. so I guess the ambiance that I have from that is that she it's very hard to take photos at Burning Man. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's this incredible dust and it destroys all the gears of cameras and things. So she had her watercolors with her and she ended up making a watercolor journal of her time. Oh, that's beautiful. And so that is kind of what I keep going back to Mm. as I'm writing is her journals. And she very graciously shared them with me. And it's a story about the real story of what happened to my mom. Mm. And I'd say like, 99% 99% of it is true. And have you interviewed her? <laughs> and the 1%, yes. Yeah, we've talked so much. Um, and lots of text is drawn like verbatim from her diaries. Wow. Mm-hmm. And her conversations and other things I've I've had to kind of imagine, right? Or I've had to speculate. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mom said, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Just tell the story. So she, she's been very um, open and free about she said, if my story can help other people who are going through, you know, something like this, wow. then please take it and share it. So it's been incredible, the response to this play. Mm. Um, I don't think I realized how connected we all are to death mm. and loss. Mm. In different ways, it could be the loss of a parent, it could be the loss of your partner, um, a child, like everybody deals with loss, grandparents. Um, or it could even be like a breakup, like a divorce, or a, it's something about a that sense of an incredible life-changing shift in your life, mm. or an illness, or so many people have related to the story, because it's really about finding your way back, finding your way back to life, right? That's lovely. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more that, that unites us than divides us. Oh, and, yeah. And I believe that's one of the, the most beautiful things about mm-hmm. what we do. I, you know, I think about when I first started to present Sansei and, and I thought it was this very particular niche idea that would, that would really resonate yeah. with a particular niche audience. 
Yeah. And then, and then the variety of people who, who would come to me after a performance to say how deeply they felt it or how they had all these really specific, unique connections that I, I never would have fathomed. I found that too so much, Kunji. Like I did a, one of my first short films was called By This Parting. Mm. And it was about my great aunt who was in an internment camp in New Denver and she got tuberculosis. Mm. So she was within a tuberculosis sanatorium inside of an internment camp. Oh my goodness. So if you want to talk about isolation, <laughs> eventually they joined my grandparents in Vernon and they passed away. They didn't have any children. So when I started working on Shepherd's Pie and Sushi and I was asking my grandfather all these questions, he said, I have something to give you uh, because he knew that the war between us, we had filmed in New Denver. Mm -hmm. And he said, these are your great aunt's photo albums and I don't know who to give them to. So I'm going to give them to you. Oh. And they were these incredible photo albums and here were all the locations where we had filmed wow. the movie. Oh my goodness. But in the 40s yeah. <laughs> and it was this glimpse into this sanatorium like people in beds all recovering from tuberculosis wow what a treasure yeah so I made it into a film a short film called by this parting mm. and I used um 11 haiku poems that were written by a woman who was also in that sanatorium wow and they'd mm. been published and I bought them when I was there making the movie that film opened at the Toronto Film Festival mm. I won Outstanding Canadian Director of a Short at the Vancouver Film Festival. It won Outstanding Experimental Film in San Diego. Wow. It played the Asian American wow. Film Circuit. It played in Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, New York, like everywhere. This little, and little, this personal, little tiny film. Yeah. But what struck me was exactly what you're talking about, mm. was that by being so personal, it spoke so universally to an enormous amount of people. Mm. I was so stunned by that, just as you described, that people had like very unique and specific ways that they connected to something that I didn't think was a universal story. Sure. I mean, we are, we are as humans, we are meaning-making mm. machines to connect to uh, story yeah. identity, one another. It really yes. is built into us. Yeah. That was one of the experiences, I would say, that has shaped me the most as a writer, which told me that to be universal, you have to be specific. And I'd say that that lesson has carried through all of my writing since that day, to right up to Burning Mom. To be universal, you have to be specific. Yeah. That's lovely. That's really lovely. The moments that people speak to me uh, about the most afterwards, they come up and say, oh, there was that moment. They're all real moments. Mm really happened mm -hmm. every single one that people talk to me about without exception isn't that yeah. interesting and then to place that with don't let the truth yeah. get in the way of a good story to then loop yeah. back and say that the truth within the story yeah. makes, makes it yeah these moments of like people go i i felt that oh. or you know you've just You've just touched on something. Well, I just got goosebumps. That's I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> wow. And it's so neat to hear you speak about that too, because it is. It's like a powerful lesson here. Mm -hmm. Feel that, mm -hmm. and like as a creator, yeah. yeah, it really, it really connects you with with greater community. And and then yeah, again, going back to that idea of of trust that the boulder will get up the hill, there is that yeah. trust that there's there's more behind you than than you imagine. And I think it also gets us away from this idea that sometimes we've been taught that anything about culture is like not universal. Mm. And I think like white supremacy actually has taught us that like, oh, if there's black people, that's a black play. Mm. Like the general public won't like that. Or if it's like, oh, there's Asian people. Oh, that's an Asian play. Or it used to be, oh, there's women. Oh, it's a chick play. Wow. Like, yeah right? Like those have been barriers that have been put in front of plays. You know, I remember sitting in the audience at the Citadel when Kim's Convenience played with an audience that were roaring at the parent, like the dad and the daughter and the dad, and like those moments were just universal about parent and child relationships, you know, and, and I, I love that idea of seeing the universal in those and, and not seeing them, not siloing them off and saying they're cultural plays or they're 
I just don't agree with that. As you spoke about all these works being siloed, and, and you spoke kind of in the past tense of if there's women in it, then it was a chick play. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can you speak to how you've seen that shift in in our industry? I think it's still in the midst of shifting. It's we're certainly not like post looking back like oh in the old <laughs> days when that used to happen. I mean, back I when sexism still... and racism were a problem. Yeah. Yeah, those old days. Oh my gosh. I I do see more and more there is a growing realization, which I hope to like cultivate and fan the flames of, showing that to to really um, represent the full community, we have to find our stories in different places and through different perspectives and different voices. And that in fact, that universal experience of experiencing each other's cultures, the differences, but also the similarities, is what builds, it's going to build an even more beautiful audience for our work. Mm. And one that is sustainable. Uh, I don't think the current model is sustainable Mm. and nor is it the best way for us to um, connect and embed ourselves in the community. And that's really what I think theater needs to do to stay alive and to stay relevant and vital is to kind of be like embedded, embedded in the community, to be important, to be talking about the stories and the, the families and the characters and the the questions that are important to the community, mm. but it has to be the whole community. For sure, so, the, the, the value yeah. is is built in that that we recognize that yeah. that you know the stories that I don't see myself on stage have as much value. Yes, absolutely. And that seems like a quite a unique step shift that that I feel is still there's quite a bit of tension there of um yeah absolutely you know who is the story meant for yeah and I think we're still wrapping our head around uh we're wrapping our head around this idea <coughs> excuse me that white is not universal mm. because that is something we have been fed I have been fed my entire life mm. the white stories were neutral and they were universal I still fight that <laughs> Like I have to always keep stopping myself and going, this is how I was brought up and trained. And I have to just keep reminding myself of that as I work to not default. Cause we just learn to default to those things. Mm. Were there, were there revelatory moments in this process mm. of something cracking open or, or seeing something in yeah. a different way? I don't feel like I truly experienced racism until I went into the theater. Wow to be honest with you, because up until then, I wasn't involved in a representational art form (laughs) that called upon me to deal with representation every living moment of my work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then eventually in film and TV. And so I ended up choosing two art forms that it was inevitable that there was going to be a confrontation in myself and with the people I worked with and the structures and institutions that I worked with and the realization that I was dealing with racism and it wasn't even conscious racism. It was unconscious, systemic, institutionalized, normalized (laughs) colonialism and white supremacy that had just come to be and everyone accepted it. Mm. I happened to choose some art forms where I was confronting it on every moment of my life. As soon as I auditioned for a role, as soon as I got an agent, mm-hmm. as soon as like I was writing a play, as soon as I was performing a character of a different race than myself, <laughs> putting on an accent, all the things. <laughs> I spoke to a couple other actors uh, in this discussion series about the process of removing the Japanese Canadian identity to enter mm-hmm. into this neutral white state to then present mm-hmm whether it's in an audition or on stage, it was normalized. It's been a really interesting revelation and wake up process to recognize that. And and as you say, dissect it and try and combat it in a daily ongoing way. Yeah, because it's not like the light goes off and suddenly you understand your identity and institutionalized racism as a young artist. (laughs) It just doesn't happen. Like, oh, now I get it. Now I can like completely speak about this like, you know, coherently. And like, it took me a long time Mm. to start to unravel that. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, the series of films first that I made about my culture was a huge part of that. 
and realizing that um, because I think I also felt a bit fraudulent as a Japanese Canadian. I didn't speak Japanese. I was half Japanese. Like, am I a real Japanese? Am I Japanese Like, enough? I have all those fears. Yeah. Am I Japanese enough? Yeah. Um, but, you know, working on the war between us, there was a big turning point for me was, you know, arriving in New Denver. This was the film with Ann Wheeler. And I suddenly arrived on a set and I was in a room with more Japanese Canadian people than I'd ever been together with in my life mm. that weren't related to me. Wow. <laughs> and I was so afraid because I was playing the lead role that they would see me as a fraud. <laughs> And they were so kind and so excited and so supportive. I just realized, no, I am. This is my community. I am part of this community. And it was such a life-changing moment for me that I really became very dedicated to helping tell stories from the community and and to help tell those stories. So Mm. there's room for all of us. For sure, yeah. What you've just spoke about is kind of the advice I needed when I was younger as well. Oh gosh, me too. <laughs> if only I'd gotten it earlier, right? Okay, well, let's let's play that game now, <laughs> shall we? Uh, <laughs> sure. Could you take us back to, I mean, the the child version of Mieko who was hanging <laughs> out with all the in the happenings with your young cousins? Mm-hmm. What's a piece of advice you would share with that version of self? I think to not be so afraid of being an imposter, that we all have a right to be a part of community. And whether you're three quarters something, half something, a quarter something, that is still your heritage and your culture. And that you're wanted and and needed to be part of that conversation. And I I know like making my first films about the internment, I hit a lot of um, pushback from some of the elders. And I really had to risk their ire with me to ask some questions about what had happened to us out of internment, the long-term effects psychological effects of internment on families which was some of the things I was looking at Mm -hmm. and people didn't want to accept that there were long-term effects of internment that was a lot of the the next phase is is to put it as as quickly as possible because early on it was like no you're just Canadian Mm -hmm. you're just Canadian Mm -hmm. you got to be proud you're Canadian and or don't rock the boat or else they'll put us in camps again Mm -hmm. That was the other side. Yeah. Like if we complain too much, they'll put us in cancer. The, the nail that sticks out gets yeah. hit. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Ultimately, I think I had to just work through that. I don't know that I could have even taken that advice, <laughs> to be honest with you. Like you kind of have to do it, yeah. right? To to earn your way through that. Um, oh, I like that, to earn your way through it. Yeah, that... there's no shortcut. Mm. As much as we wish there was. <laughs> And it's a journey. It's like a lifelong journey. It's not over. We're still figuring it out. Okay, can we can we can we jump <laughs> forward in in the lifeline here yeah. to the um, to the young yeah. writer coming out of theater school <laughs> who has hung up their pen for a little while uh, <laughs> to, be an, to be an actor. Yeah. What piece of advice would you share with that version of self? Just keep writing secretly. Mm. You don't need to tell anybody. Just keep going. It's okay. Mm. Um, it's compulsive. It's a compulsion. You're, you're compelled to do it. Just let that compulsion lead you Mm. to where you need to go. Lovely. Okay. I got one more iteration for you is, is you look ahead to when, when you may want to take your, your trip to Burning Man. Yeah. Yes. When, when you, uh, uh, enter into this (laughs) next phase of life, what is something that this version of Miyako would offer to, Uh, the future self. I really hope that I am as brave and as cool as my mom is. Sincerely, Mm. to take the risks that she has taken in her life since my father passed away, to be an adventurer. Mm. So that's what I hope for myself, that I am like, have the balls and the guts to do. (laughs) I want to say it's a bit of a a testament to your, (laughs) your career that we haven't even touched on TYA, Theatre for Young Audience, which is such a huge part of your artistic practice. Can you speak a little bit about a Concrete Theatre and your work yes. with providing stories for young people? Oh my gosh. Well, Concrete Theatre, I co-founded when I was 19 years old. I have found working with young people to be endlessly interesting. Um, and that's how we first met, that's was working right. at a TYA that's show. Right. Um, I find the kids, kids and youth, 
so open and honest and curious and so open to the gifts that theater has mm. as a as a tool to investigate topics that they're wrestling with it's a way in and i always find that if we approach those questions with real curiosity and without the arrogance of thinking that we know what the answer is but we enter into a real conversation with kids that that work is so interesting and it's really progressive i think that's the other thing it's i feel like it's kept me pushing forward in a progressive way by working with kids i think some of the most progressive work i've seen ever in theater has been for children and youth so i love the challenge of of that work and my colleagues and internationally the work that's going on around the world is absolutely incredible if you ever want to get inspired check out some international tya work it'll really yeah get you thinking about why we do theater there's such a, a nutrient-rich potential in offering them the space of let's imagine it yeah. together let's go there as a team yeah. to, to, and to ask questions without actually knowing what the answer is like genuinely yeah, it's so exciting yeah. because the kids have lots of ideas and sometimes they're better than whatever answers we think we have already anyways <laughs> Yeah, For so sure. I'm, you know, looking forward, I know one of the things we're, we're really interested at Concrete, because we, we've talked a lot about race and culture in the past, is to create some mm. opportunities to talk about anti-racism and anti-oppression work with children, with a mix of activists mm. and artists together. And so that's kind of what I see as my next phase of work at Concrete, oh, yes, is to please. like oh. safely open up conversations about race with kids. I think Absolutely. artists are, and, and activists are the way in for that. So, artists. artists, exactly, artists. Yes, that's right. That's what, I, that's what I'm hoping to dig into. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Mieko, thank you so much for your time, for joining me here. What a delightful thank conversation. Wonderful. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and ideas with us here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage. Once again, my name is Kunji Ikeda, and it's an honor to host these conversations. And a huge thank you to Miyako Ochi for her thoughts and ideas with us today. Another big thanks to the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center for helping to produce these episodes. We want to offer a big thank you to Onibana Taiko, who has given us the soundtrack for these conversations. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please like and share with a friend who may enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time on Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me.